Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My name is Nicholas Todd, and I serve on the pastoral team here at LEFC. Our current series is Bonafide, Confronting Superficial Faith. We're exploring the Sermon on the Mount found in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. We are just in the beginning of the sermon, uh, still in the early verses that are frequently called the Beatitudes. The ushers do have Bibles for you to use. Just get their attention as they walk the aisles. The Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, are part of a much larger picture in the book of Matthew. Each of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, contribute to our understanding of Jesus. For example, Mark. Mark is a Gospel of passion that gives the reader a glimpse into the emotional life of Jesus. Luke. Luke is a gospel of amazement. Amazement runs through all of it, whether it be Pharisees amazed or parents of sick children amazed or the people who heard Jesus at the temple when he was just a child amazed. Amazement runs through it. They are in awe. In my own readings of Luke, as I've, as I've realized this, I, I've started to ask myself, am I amazed? Am I in awe at the mystery and majesty of Jesus? John, John, the gospel of John is rich with a high Christology that gives us the grace to misunderstand what Jesus has said. Time after time in the book of John, there's misunderstanding with the people who are trying to grasp what is Jesus saying. And then there's Matthew, the first book of the, Bible, of the New Testament. Of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew's gospel is about identity. It's about abandoning our incomplete identities. It's about refining who a person is in Christ, as a Christ follower, and to embrace this new identity. The first and last beatitude talk about the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's God's dominion. It's his presence. It's his approval. It's his leadership. It's his holiness and his perfection that is now. And it's also to come. The modern day church, we are part of this kingdom. And that's a challenge. There is full expectation of our inclusion and participation in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. So if there's full expectation of our participation in this family, in this kingdom, we need to know what it takes, right? Jesus. 
Jesus steps up. He talks about the surrendering of whatever citizenship we currently define our identity by and gives us what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom of heaven where he, Jesus, is king and and not because we voted for him. He's king whether we like it or not. Matthew speaks to this identity, this identity of Jesus and the challenge of shaping our own identities to mirror his. Again, Matthew speaks to the identity of Jesus and the challenge of shaping our identities to mirror his. This is where the Beatitudes come in. The Beatitudes matter. How do many Christians view the Beatitudes? How do you view them? Where do you place them in your life? This is a, a hard question for me. I've had to wrestle with some of my answers um, over, over years. My, my heart has changed over the years to the Beatitudes, and I'm grateful I can track some of the history. I would say like many others here in this room, I grew up hearing them in the background of all of the culture I was part of. Maybe I would see a Beatitude as a decal on a wall, or it would be scrolling across the screen Thank you, Windows 95. Or a beatitude here or there would be added to a Bible teaching. They're they're relatively direct, these teachings, and that makes good use for them as support pieces to, to whatever agenda the speaker may have. That can also lead to misuse. So to a degree, the beatitudes became moral statements. They were used so much for me, and without heart transformation, they held no weight for me in the church. They were, they were platitudes, things that people say when they don't know what to say. You, you've heard platitudes before. Um, anyone ever tell you there are plenty of fish in the sea? Or what doesn't kill you makes you Stronger. How would, you, how would you finish this next one? Um, it doesn't matter if you win or lose. What? <laughs> Some people might say it's how you play the game. One I heard was it doesn't matter if you win or lose. It only matters that you tried. You know, there are moments where the result of winning or losing is valid. And it does matter. I made a mistake in my life of not having the ears, of not having the heart, the mind to hear the Beatitudes for the foundational truth that they are. And they're not common sense sayings. So we have to engage our mind. The Beatitudes are remarkably subversive to every culture, to every nation, every single kingdom except for God's kingdom. They take our cultural values and they they turn them upside down. They take our order, they disorder it, and then we have to work to reorder it within a God framework. So today, 
if my life can be anything, please let me caution you and just say, take a different road than I have. Don't let the Beatitudes become just sentimental sayings in your life. Think on them, reflect on them, meditate on them, and let them take over. Jesus, after sitting on the side of the mountain and his disciples coming to him, he began to teach. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes build on each other. The first three require an emptying of ourselves. The poor in spirit is a place of understanding the state of our spirit, our character, and soul. Knowing this and needing God to rule our life. And then we need to mourn over our sin and rest in the embrace of God. Then in the embrace of God, we set aside ourselves and we recognize other as more important in our care. We work to not retaliate, to not, to, to not defend, but to heal. Like Moses, when, when he said, please, God, heal her about his attacker. These three require an emptying of ourselves. The fourth beatitude, Jesus now makes a transition from emptiness to fullness by saying that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is also blessed. Beatitude 4, the one we explore today, begins to move us from need to desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Holy Spirit, I ask that... Uh, as you have stirred my mind and my heart over the years, in the last six months, how you have removed things that do not represent Jesus. Lord, I pray that for all people here, work in their minds with you, would you allow them to, to stay here in this moment and hear the things that are meant for them. By the power of your word, may our lives be changed. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This beatitude raises two questions for me. One, what is hungering and thirsting? And two, what is righteousness? 
What might it mean to hunger and thirst for something? I want you to turn to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. I want to read through a section of scripture that follows the baptism of Jesus, but precedes the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 4. I'll be reading 1 through 11. Please follow along with me. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Jesus' baptism immediately precedes this and has the presence of God's voice. When the skies open up, the Spirit of God descends like a dove and the words ring out, this is my son, identity. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What a kickoff to public ministry. And then he disappears into the wilderness. The devil tempts him three times. And these temptations are designed to turn Jesus away from what he has been commissioned to do. And his answers to the temptations are phenomenal. One, because he's constantly, constantly keeping his focus on God the Father, not his own needs. And two, because he uses scripture in response in each challenge, in each time. And it wasn't until my most recent reading that I put something together, that Jesus' answers to the devil, I knew they all came from Deuteronomy. But this time around, in this reading, I learned that all come from a specific section of Deuteronomy, not just random Deuteronomy, but Israel in the wilderness Deuteronomy. Matthew's gospel is written for a Jewish audience. Jesus had come through the waters of baptism, like Israel, crossing the Red Sea. He now spends 40 days and nights in the wilderness. It's pretty similar to Israel's 40 years in the desert. This time, though, this Israelite makes it through. He has come to do what God always wanted Israel to do, to be the light that points to God. What does verse 2 in our text say? What does verse 2 say? Immediately before the temptations begin. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I know I've said, I'm hungry 
before. But I'm not sure how, how much I've genuinely experienced hunger. Last week, I referenced followers of Christ being mild-mannered superheroes. Let me tell you, snacks are my kryptonite. I see it, a tray of cubed cheeses and smoked meats, and, and I think, I think, you know, I just had breakfast, I just had lunch, but I shouldn't be rude. If you insist on setting it out, I will serve you in this way. Jesus in the wilderness. He wasn't snacking on the disciples' most recent hunting trophy. He was fasting 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry, genuinely hungry. This hungry, it's the same word and idea communicated in our beatitude. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. What would hunger be like after 40 days of fasting? How would you describe that hunger? Any whole 30 participants out there? It's not for me. I know some, though. It's a, it's a way that people eat. In the last couple of weeks, I delivered to a friend a block of sharp cheddar that I had smoked. The friend accepted my cheese gift. Blessed are the cheesemakers. But they won't eat it yet because of Whole30. I wasn't familiar with it, so I said, what are the rules? Whole30 is no grains, no sugar, no dairy, no legumes. I asked what they crave. Pizza. It was said with a wild look of romance. How would you describe 40 days of fasting? What does that hunger look like? I believe a person would desire so Deeply, to come out of the faintness, the dizziness, the weakness, just the head spinning that you would experience with each drop in blood pressure as you move about. It would be a longing, how long, O oh Lord, until remedy is upon me. It would be an ache like nothing else. You just want it to be done. In the case of Matthew 4, it would be for food. But Matthew 5 says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those that ache deeply for righteousness. Approved before God are those that ache deeply for righteousness. As followers of Jesus, we are to ache deeply for righteousness. Many of us have been programmed for good or for bad, what that might mean. Let me encourage you to consider there might be more to righteousness than has been fully considered. Let's talk about righteousness. Let's define it. And just for scope today, the Apostle Paul contributes mightily to our understanding of righteousness. But we won't be hanging out there with him today. Merely because to go there, we would need a whole nother sermon. All of Scripture works beautifully together. So I encourage you to listen today. Plot your own heart in relationship to this righteousness. Go to Paul. Pray to God. We're in this together. The Bible. The Bible is filled with references to righteousness. We did a series in the Psalms not long ago. Listen to these verses just from the Psalms. This is Psalm 36, 6. It begins with, Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. 
Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 111, 3. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. Uh, Pastor Tony. Pastor Tony started our series looking at Matthew 5.20, which says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pastor Tony then went on to explain that the standard of righteousness taught and lived out by the Pharisees and teachers of the law, it was a failure. It wasn't true to genuine righteousness. It was just superficial, just barely skimming over the surface, enough for it to appear like the real deal, but upon closer examination, you would see that it was fake. I'm wearing a tie today. It's a real tie. I tied it myself. How much do you see? Just the knot. Think it goes all the way to my belt? Think there's a stain on it? Y'all got no idea. There's a level of superficiality to this. I just knew if I got my not right, that's enough. It's not complete. Superficial. I was humming through a song last week. It comes from Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Join me. And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah. So, what is it? What is righteousness? more. It's more than a character trait. It is more than the idea of being the most right. It's a spiritual condition, but we can't hear this beatitude as, blessed are those who really want to be spiritual, for they shall be really spiritual. This is the same pithiness that destroys the provocative nature of Jesus's words. Think about it this way. I am frequently right, but not frequently righteous. In my study, I came across a German theologian named Gerhard von Rad. He worked with some of the oral traditions of the Old Testament and was a professor in several universities. Dr. von Rad argues that righteousness is not about living up to legal principles and standards, which comes from Matthew 5.20, which Tony used as the opening for the series. Dr. von Rad writes that righteousness is all about living in faithfulness to the terms of relationship. Meaning, righteousness is about living up to the particular claims any given relationship lays upon us. Again, righteousness is about living up to the particular claims any given relationship lays upon us. I had to think about this one for a time. It's about being faithful in our relationships. It's about right-relatedness. 
what does it mean to be rightly relating? My marriage vow to my wife is one relationship to consider. I must live up to the promise, to the vow, to the covenant I made with my wife. That's just one area. It's just one area of right relatedness. And in my study, I saw there are four areas of right relatedness that go back to Genesis. There is right relatedness with creation, community, with ourselves, and with God. Genesis 2-7 is creation. When the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the man became a living being. We are physical creatures made from the material of the earth. The Hebrew word here for human is Adam. The Hebrew word for ground is Adama. We are connected to the soil, the medium from which most of the earth grows. We have a relationship with the earth. Genesis 2, 18 through 22, on community. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, suitable, a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. We are social creatures. We are created for community. The Hebrew for man is ish. The Hebrew for woman is isha. We were made for fellowship with each other. We were made for relationship with other human beings, community. Genesis 2.25, a relationship with self. This is what Genesis 2.25 says. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We are psychological creatures. The human mind is incredibly complex. Glory to God. When Adam and Eve were naked in the garden before, they felt no shame. None. Back to our origin in the Garden of Eden, humanity didn't need to struggle with shame or guilt. Humanity was made for a healthier relationship with their self. But sin took that away. Which brings us to Genesis 3.8. Relationship with God. Right relationship with God. Sin has entered the picture and separation has started. Genesis 3.8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man... Where are you? God in the garden, coming down to walk with humanity, mirrored through the coming of Jesus Christ in the word, made flesh, wants right relatedness with humankind. 
This is a relationship with God. So those are the four areas of right relatedness that go back to Genesis. Right relatedness with creation, with community, with ourselves, and with God. So back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 does break down some specific ideas about the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of right relatedness. Jesus gives the following to define our righteousness over a Pharisee of his day. I haven't included all of them, just some of them from chapter 5. In verses 21 through 26, not only should you not kill, but also you must not stay angry. You must reconcile and find peace. In verses 27 through 30, not only should you not commit adultery, but also don't look at a person lustfully. In verse 38 through 42, if someone slaps you on one cheek, give them the other. Let them balance it out. And then return evil with good. And in verses 43 through 48, not only should you love your neighbor, but also you should love your enemy and pray for those who slap you on both cheeks after you gave them your shirt and your coat. And then blessed them with a gift. My point is that we don't set the right relatedness standard. It isn't just how I feel about it. It's how God feels about it. There's, there's always an understanding gap. Always an understanding gap. There's always a holiness gap, a sin gap between us and God. But glory be to God, Jesus has come and he has closed that gap off. Blessed are those that ache for right relatedness with creation, with community, with self and God, for they will be filled. The Beatitudes have, have shaken me. They've turned my world upside down because I was part of a world that made them cute, made them sentimental, made them pithy. I'm embarrassed that it's taken me so long to see them for what they are, a direct confrontation with how I have lived as a Christian. Praying through the Beatitudes, that practice has the potential to reveal all the secret sins you hold in your heart that prevent you from right relationships. Not only will it reveal and break your heart for what breaks God's, but through the work of the Spirit, you are able to live with a revived heart, a softening to Jesus, and an ache, a hunger for the church to truly, truly be representative of our King. At the very end of the sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Lord, Lord, I have done the things that are spiritual. I have shown up on Sunday mornings. I went to a church retreat. I've got a Bible, multiple. I've served as a deacon. I teach Sunday school sometimes. I went to a Christian school. I studied a thick theology book. Do I pass? Yes. As a Pharisee, I pass. I've walked that path myself, and it is a restless journey. Augustine's Confessions, one piece says, You, God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our ardent pursuit of right relationship with creation, with community, other humans, ourselves, and with God will only push us deeper into God's magnificent alternative to what we have turned the world into. The pursuit of right relationship is full participation in the kingdom of God, where Jesus is king and where his values define us and guide us. There is no left and right politics with King Jesus. Just a transcendent challenge to both the left and the right to find right relationships. And in the pursuit of right relationship, we find Jesus again and again and again and again. It is Jesus that fills us. Jesus is what satisfies Righteousness is hard because it requires heart transformation. It pushes reconciliation with those that we have wronged personally and with those that we have wronged as a church. It takes a humility. It takes being poor in spirit first. It takes mourning what we have done that brings dishonor to the created. It takes humility one that drives us to think of other. And finally, it takes an ache for right relationships. We have work to do, and I have work to do. In my heart, with God, with my community, and with creation. In light of Matthew 5 and 6, as we move into communion, I'd love for you to reflect on a couple questions. The first one. When in your regular rhythms are you most aware of God's right relationship commitment to you? Number two. What longings do you have that only God can fill. Number three, is there a recurring, damaging pattern of behavior between you and another person or, or a group of people? How does that reduce you and them to less than God's created ones? And finally, what role might reconciliation play 
in this pursuit of righteousness. Pray with me. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me for being able to hold scripture in my hands, but making it cute. That as the creator of the universe, you you have an order for us. as a participant in my culture, as a shaper in my culture, I've just, I've just walked along just making them sentimental and pithy. Lord, I pray for a continued work in my heart and a continued work in the hearts of every single person in this church, in every church on the globe. We see righteousness as an opportunity to have that relationship with you. Thank you for walking in the garden. Thank you for looking for us. Thank you for your son. Work in our hearts this day, the next day, all this week. Give us those encounters. that gives some flesh to this scripture. We trust you, Lord. In the holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Church, let's prepare our hearts for communion. Let's stand as we sing the song and set our eyes on our Savior and his righteousness. Let's stand and sing.
reflect on his mercy, the hope he's given us this morning. given the opportunity to remember Jesus. We've been given the, the means to remember who he is and what he has done on our behalf. And we have the opportunity to be drawn into unity by this practice, taking the bread and the juice. We have an opportunity to remember that it is by grace, through faith, we are saved. We often read a portion of 1 Corinthians 11 as we engage in communion. I want to read the end of that chapter first. This is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm in verse 34. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So that we engage this practice with the right heart, we are given such a warning. Let me take this, and I want to consider it another way. That was, that was about food there. Eat before you come so that you're not ravenous at communion. Let me take this and consider it this way. Let this reminder bring us to a place of hungering, of aching deeply to be in right relationship with Jesus. Jesus sat with his disciples and, and did something that breaks my heart. It's, it's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, his betrayer sat with him 
someone that had heard the teachings, seen the miracles, someone who was ready to sell him out, to manipulate, someone who thought they were righteous and in right relationship. Jesus sat with him. And Jesus, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church, with the church of the globe, let's take this bread together and then sit with Jesus. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. A new covenant, a new way to think about right relationship. Let's take the cup together with gratefulness in our hearts for his commitment to his creation. Lord, give us faith. Lord, we recognize our weakness so that we can see when you come alongside us. Unify us. Work in our own lives, our individual lives, so that we can contribute to your kingdom in a way that just changes the globe. Would we remember? Would we remember what you've given us? Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? I will remain here after the service if you want to connect, if you want to share, or if you want to pray together. We also have the encounter room, which is in the back and to my left, where there are, are other people that uh, would love to sit with you, to hear you, to be part of, of that kind of worship, to be that community that you may need. So receive this blessing, this benediction from the Apostle Paul. 
And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. We'll see you next week.